You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. Um, originally, I had something entirely different slated for this week, and for whatever reason, um, it just felt like the Lord was kind of like, hey, your plans are great, but they're not my plans, so let's toss those aside and let's do this instead. Um, and if you've been a- around Sojourn for any length of time, you know, you know, uh, that one of the most obvious realities here at Sojourn is that we are a young church, um, both as a family of believers, right? So Sojourn Montrose has been around for about two and a half years, but also just as individuals, right? We're a young church. Now, I, I've heard our youth referred to as both a great strength and a great weakness, um, and, and the reality is that there's probably truth to both of those, right? Right? Um, that, it's, that, that it is in some ways a great strength and that it is in some ways a great weakness as well. And I think just in having conversations with people um, that, that belong to Sojourn, most of us would say that one of the biggest weaknesses for us is that we are long on passion, but we're short on wisdom. And so as a church that feels a distinct lack in wisdom, the pressing question then is how do we get it, right? Right? How do we obtain wisdom? Well, that's precisely, precisely why we've chosen to spend the next couple of weeks in some selected Proverbs. Um, and so here's the reality. Um, we've got three weeks um, to spend in the Proverbs, and, and so we're just going to do a, a couple of different ones. And my hope is, my hope is that this little taste on the palate will, will make you want to dive in deeper into the Proverbs in your own personal life um, and study um, and so maybe in the context of your neighborhood parish, whatever that looks like, um, but that is the goal of, of Proverbs. And so this morning, we're going to talk about the pursuit of wisdom. Let's pray, and we'll jump right in. Father, we thank you for this morning. We do thank you for the opportunity to gather together as your people. Uh, remind us, Father, that what draws us together this morning is not a particular building or a particular uh, church name. Uh, or a particular style of, of worship or teaching, but Lord, that what draws us here together this morning is the person and work of Jesus Christ through whom all of our sins have been paid and through whom all of our differences are now reconciled. Um, and so we belong to you, yes, but we also belong to one another. And together, as we worship and receive instruction from your word, we are being bound together. So that when we arrive in glory, that great multitude will sing together with one voice, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. It's you that we worship this morning and it's you that we come to hear from. So be with us, send your spirit to open eyes and ears and hearts to what it is that you would have us to receive this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, so uh, let's jump into Proverbs. And, and just like any time that we start um, a new book, there's kind of a little bit of, uh, uh, of, of background that we need for jumping into that book. So let me just say this, right? The, the book of Proverbs is really simply a, a collection of sayings, right? Uh, King Solomon of Israel, who was the son of David. So if you don't know who Solomon is, but, but you have a general familiarity with the Bible, you should know King David, right? David of David and Goliath, right? Slingshot, that whole thing, right? So this is David's son, King Solomon of Israel, and he's the one that's attributed with both 
authoring some of the Proverbs, but also just collecting some of them, in that we have multiple authors who contribute to this collection of wise sayings. Now, what gives right, Solomon the authority to write and collect a book like this, right? Does Sol- is Solomon just wise because he says he's wise, or is he widely acknowledged as such? Well, um, in the book of 1 Kings chapter 4, it, it tells us this. It says, God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore, so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt, for he was wiser than all other men, and his fame was in all the surrounding nations. So here's the thing, Solomon is not just wise because Solomon said one day, woke up and went, I'm really wise, you guys should listen to me. Right? But that God gave Solomon wisdom, that it wasn't something that he conjured up, but that something that, that, that God poured out upon him, and then that the world around him, the nations around him looked at Solomon and went, that dude is wise. He's wise. And so, it's critical for us to note this. But let's be clear from the beginning, right? The Proverbs are not just pithy moral sayings. They fall into the stream of God's covenant grace. The book of Proverbs is essentially a primer on how to practically live within God's covenant. So this is why I'm really excited about spending the next three weeks in Proverbs, because it is the perfect link between the series that we just came out of, Christ of the Covenants, Right, where we saw how throughout the Bible there's a unifying theme, which is that God is drawing together for Himself a people and that He's going to be faithful to do that. And that there are norms that that people are going to live in only make sense. And that's essentially what, what Proverbs is doing for us. It's saying this is what it looks like to live in the context of this covenant. This is what it looks like to live underneath the loving, gracious, initiating grace of God. And then, uh, most of you don't know this yet, but we're going to go to J- the book of Job after this. And if most of you just got depressed, just know that it'll be okay. Um, but Job, for those of you that didn't know, is also considered wisdom literature. And here's what Job's going to do for us, right? Proverbs gives us sort of general truths about life. If we do this, then this is a likely outcome, whether it's a good outcome or an evil outcome, wisdom or folly right? And then Job shows us that, you know what, sometimes even when you do the right thing, you suffer. And that God is still God and that God is still doing what He is doing, still being faithful to what He's always promised He would do. So the link in between all of these is Proverbs. But let's let Solomon introduce the book to us, right? This is what we just read. This is the reason that Solomon gives for writing the book, right? Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, writes this book to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance to understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. So what is Proverbs written for? It's written for 
Wisdom, instruction, understanding, wise dealing, righteousness, justice, equity, prudence, knowledge, discretion, learning, guidance, right? All things that I think even whether you're a Christian in the room or not this morning, this is probably something that we're, that we're looking for, right? That in whatever given moment we happen to find ourselves in, in our lives probably one of these would be useful. <laughs> so that's what Proverbs promises to deliver. At this point, I, I hope that we're at least somewhat compelled to, to dig a little bit deeper, right? So that's what it's written for, but who's it written to? Now, there's some great keys here that, that, are, that are really great. And what we have to know here is that in this culture, in this time, wisdom was reserved for a certain class of people. Right? And so to be wise was to, was to be essentially elevated within the culture. Wisdom was for a certain group of people. Not so in God's word, because what does it say? Verse 4, it says, to give prudence to who? To the simple. To give knowledge and discretion to the youth, right? And there are some of us who would consider ourselves wise in the room this morning. Maybe we're a little bit older than... Uh, than the general demography in here, and we go, yeah, this is for you guys. We'll read the next verse, and it says, let the wise hear and increase in learning. So here's what Solomon is saying. The book of Proverbs is going to democratize wisdom. Wisdom is available to all and is useful for all, both to the simple and to the wise, both to the young and to the old. Essentially, what it's saying is that anyone who desires those things that we just read above, that wisdom, that discernment, that guidance, that knowledge, that instruction, that prudence, that one, two, three, four, you know, I don't have them all memorized, but that that's who the book of Proverbs is written to. So if that's the introduction... If this is this great book of wisdom, if that's what Proverbs hopes to do, to instill wisdom in God's people, where is it that Solomon would have us to start? Well, this is what it says. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. This is the thesis statement of the book of Proverbs. All the other sayings begin here. There is no knowledge, there is no wisdom apart from the fear of the Lord. That's a big, bold statement, right? This is where if we were to jump halfway into the book of Proverbs, we would miss where it all begins, right? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Now, there's a, a couple key things that I think we need to work through here, right? The first question is clearly, clearly that if the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, what does the Bible mean by fear? Because I'm sure that most of us, when, generally when we walk into a church or when we sing songs, we sing songs about God's grace and His love and His mercy and His kindness, and, right? And then we hear a word, fear, and we go, well, wait a minute. Is this, is, is this the hook, essentially? Y'all just baited it with the grace stuff, and now you're telling me I, I, have to, I have to fear Him. Well, we struggle with this word. Let me just say that 
what I mean by struggle is we, we struggle with translating this word from the Hebrew, and here's why. There's really no um, adequate or close English equivalent to the word that's actually used in Hebrew, but I think that we can draw clues as to what the Bible means by this word fear when we read from the book of Isaiah chapter 11. Because in, in, in Isaiah chapter 11, he is prophesying about Jesus who would come, and he says this. This is what he says about Jesus. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, right? We, we see this happen at Jesus' baptism when the Spirit descends upon him, right, in the form of a dove. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So it tells us that Jesus will have a spirit of the fear of the Lord. How, how does that work, right? We've always talked about how Jesus is equal with God. Philippians tells us that he didn't consider that equality with God something to be grasped, but that he had it nonetheless, right? That Jesus is as much God as God the Father. So why would he fear him? Not only that, if you read the next verse, this is what it says, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. So I think what we can safely say at this point, knowing the relationship between Jesus and the Father... We can safely say that when Proverbs uses the word fear there, it doesn't mean the kind of fear that we're thinking of, which is this, this kind of fear. Please don't hurt me, right? We know from the way that Jesus and the Father talk about each other that their relationship is wholly loving and mutually so, right? The Father says uh, of, of Jesus at his baptism, this is my son in whom I am well pleased, Right? Jesus, when he's praying to the Father for the disciples that he was going to leave behind after his death and resurrection, he says that his Father has loved him from the foundations of the world, from before the foundation of the world. That's in John chapter 17. So here's what we can know. The fear that Proverbs is describing in this verse is not a cowering fear, but rather a loving regard like that of Jesus the Son for the Father. It's reverence. And it's reverence not just for God's divine power, it's, it's reverence and proper regard, making a right estimation of God's holiness, justice, power, wisdom, love, compassion, mercy. It's attributing all the right characteristics to God in, in the measure that He is due to have them attributed to Him. So when it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, what, what it's actually telling us is that we can't begin to have knowledge unless we put God where He belongs, which is over all and in all and through all. The second thing we need to note is this, right? There are two words in this passage, in this verse, that get repeated all throughout the, the book of Proverbs, knowledge and wisdom. And while they are cr closely related, we need to know the distinction between the two because it is very important. Knowledge is this. Knowledge is correct understanding of the world and oneself as creatures of the magnificent and loving God, right? 
That's why it says the, that the beginning of knowledge is the fear of the Lord. It's making a right estimation of who God is and who you are. That's all. That's it. That's the beginning of knowledge. And wisdom is this. Wisdom is, if you go and look at the Hebrew translation, it's really just a, a, a translated to the word skill. So wisdom is simply this. It's the acquired skill of applying knowledge rightly. So it means that when we take into account who God is and who we are and what that requires of us, wisdom is how we then apply that knowledge to our lives. It's using knowledge appropriately. Think of it this way. If knowledge is knowing what point B is, wisdom is what gets you there. Does that make sense? That is the difference between knowledge and wisdom. And so what Solomon is saying is that we can't hope to have true knowledge or wisdom apart from God, and not just any God. Let's be clear. It says the fear of the Lord. Now, that's capital L-O-R-D. Anytime that you see that in the Old Testament, you know what is being translated there, right? It's the covenant name of the God of Israel. It's Yahweh. So this is not a general fear of a God or some God or your God. It's this God, God, the only God, the God of Israel, Yahweh. The beginning of knowledge is the fear of Him, that God, and Him alone. So what does this mean, right? Knowledge and wisdom cannot be had in their truest and fullest sense apart from God. What does that mean for us? We could take this in a thousand different directions, but I think that this is what's most appropriate for this morning. Knowing this, knowing that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and of wisdom, and that only fools despise His instruction, should drastically affect how we process what the world tells us. It should drastically affect how we process what the world tells us. Here's the reality that Solomon is, is proclaiming to us. If what the world tells us is not rooted in, proceeding from, or in alignment with Christ, it is silly. It's foolishness, and it's to be regarded as such. Listen to Paul's exhortation to a young man named Timothy. He writes him a letter and he says this, Timothy, being trained in the words of the good faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. Now, did you catch the word that Paul uses? Irreverent. Irreverent. The moment that something fails to revere God is the moment that it becomes silly, and not just silly, but silly in mythological proportions. 
The moment that we lose God as the center, the moment that we lose reverence for God, the, the, the moment that we fail to estimate correctly His worth, His value, His great grace, His majestic mercy, His great power, His sovereignty over creation, the moment that we do that is the moment that we walk into irreverent, silly myths. If God says one thing, and humans say another, it's the humans who are wrong, full stop. And we're not just wrong, we're silly, foolish. Now notice what Paul said would guard Timothy, right? What did the verse say? It said, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. What would guard Timothy? His training in what? The words of the faith and of the good doctrine. Brothers and sisters, this is why we have the Bible. This is why we go to the Bible every week. This is why I don't get to just get up here and give you, here's my five tips for a better life. Because more often than not, those are irreverent, silly myths. And what we need is the faith. The words of the faith, the good doctrine that will keep us from wandering into irreverent, silly myths. In the Bible, we see God's character, who He is, and we see God's words, what He says, and we are able then to make a right estimation of His worth, of His majesty, of His grace, of His mercy, of His loving kindness, of His justice, of His equity, of His prudence. And it's that that allows us to distinguish between what is true and reverent and wise from what is foolishness, folly, and myth. The psalmist puts it this way in Psalm 119, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. That it's the word that leads us, that guides us, that is the proverbial lamp for our feet. So we're called to live lives that give the appropriate reverence for God and demonstrate that reverence by walking according to His statutes, according to the norms of His kingdom, not ours, right? That's what we're being called to do. That's what Proverbs calls us to do. That's what uh, the, 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 the law given to Moses is given to do, right? That's, that's what all of this is trying to, to accomplish, to make clear to us. That this is what is required of us, to walk in perfection, to walk rightly and justly before God. And we're expected to do this perfectly. And if we have a right estimation of God, right? If we, if we understand God correctly, then that is an utterly reasonable demand of His, is it not? That if He has created all of these things, and if He has created us in His very own image, to bring glory to His name, then for Him to ask obedience of us is utterly reasonable. It just is. It doesn't sit well with us because we're anti-authoritarian and all this other stuff, but it's utterly reasonable because it's an authority that is rightly due Him. But here's the reality, right? And we all know this. We fail. 
We walk daily in foolishness. We fall daily into irreverence. We are tempted regularly by silly myths. Here's how Romans 1 puts it. Romans 1 says, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And it's from that point that, that Paul, the, the one who's writing the book of Romans, um, or the letter to the Romans, right, goes on to list all these sort of ways that that foolishness manifests itself in the way that they behave, right, in their drunkenness, in their sexual immorality, and on and on and on and on. But you want to know what's at the, the core of that? As it said, claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. It says they took their eyes off of who God is. They failed to esteem God appropriately. They did not estimate Him correctly. They did not understand Him for who He really is. They believed that He was a God who could be trifled with, one who could be brought low, one who they did not owe their their allegiance to. And it's from that that everything collapsed. That was their problem in that day, and that's our problem in this day both as a church, as a country, as a world, as humanity. That is our problem. We fail to estimate God and ourselves correctly, and so we walk in foolishness. So where's the good news, right? <laughs> well, the good news is that Christ walked in reverence for us. Christ upheld the wisdom of God's kingdom perfectly, even though it set him at complete and utter odds with the so-called wisdom of his contemporaries, right? So much of Jesus' conflict happens with those who are perceived to be wise in their day. And he held to it to the degree that it cost him his very life. Now, here's the thing. Some of us, you know, we we think about the deity of God and the humanity of God and how those two being fully real at the same time is paradoxical and weird to understand. And so we just think that, you know, maybe Jesus just didn't have as hard of a time as we do. You know, like, yeah, Jesus, but you have a, you, you, one, you are God and you have a personal relationship with God. And so, like, you don't fully understand the struggle, the difficulty that it is to estimate God correctly and ourselves correctly. You don't, you don't get that, Jesus. But here's, here's what Hebrews says. Hebrews says, we do not have a high priest, we do not have a Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So here's the thing, the same Satan that successfully deceived Adam and Eve and led us into this open rebellion towards God's wisdom, this this open misestimation of God and who we are, right? I mean, that's essentially what happened, right? Adam and Eve thought they could be God. They took that upon themselves and they realized that it doesn't work that way. That same Satan tested, tempted Jesus. 
And it doesn't just say in some ways or in one way or a little bit here just to, just to make sure that there was enough to give him some credibility. It says, in every respect, yet without sin. He was tempted in every respect and yet remained faithful. So Jesus, here's the, here's the thing, right? If we want to talk about justice, right, then Jesus deserved the outcome of his faithfulness, did he not? Like all of these things that the Proverbs tells us, if we walk in wisdom, we'll receive, right? Riches and, and enjoyment and the fullness of life, and all, right? All of those things, all of this wisdom that Jesus walked in perfectly, he deserved the outcome of that, did he not? And yet he received crucifixion, a sinner's death and burial in the flesh. He did this. He did this so that grace and forgiveness could be made available to us. It is because of his payment of our debt that Hebrews then says this in the very next verse. This is what it says. Let us then, right? So because we have a high priest who was tempted in every, every respect, yet without sin, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So here's what that means. That means that there is mercy for us when we fail to walk according to the wisdom of God, when we walk in foolishness and irreverent silly myths. But there's also grace to help in time of need. So there's mercy for when it goes wrong, but there's grace to help us move forward. So that means that when given the opportunity, we don't have to walk in foolishness. We're not doomed by our flesh to do so. We've been ransomed, redeemed, and reconciled so that we can walk in the wisdom of God now. We've been given the power to do so. This is what 2 Peter says. His divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness. How? Through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. Right? This, the Bible right now is speaking to us in unison. Do you see this? It's telling us to estimate God correctly. It's telling us that God is, in fact, who He says He is. That Jesus walked in obedience for us. And that now, because we can know Jesus, because Jesus is tangible, because He is the perfect representation of God, He is the exact image of God's likeness, we can know Him and we can know Him to the degree that now we walk in wisdom, that we walk in light of that knowledge. In Christ, the Word of God became flesh, dwelt among us, making the character and the ethics of God known, clearly, on display for all to see. If we want wisdom, we cultivate our knowledge of Him. That's where it starts. This is what the Word of God is for. We need a right fear, that is, reverence, of the Lord that is cultivated by God's own word. Did you see the link? That's the link throughout all of this. That's what the Psalms is saying. I have hidden your word in my heart that I, have not, that I might not sin against you. This is what Paul is telling Timothy. Guard that deposit. Guard the good doctrine, the words of the faith, right? He tells Timothy in another letter, he says that every word of Scripture is God-breathed, that it's useful for teaching, for rebuke, for reproof, right? He's saying, look, hold fast to this. If we want to be wise and walk in godliness beyond our age, 
if we want to serve our city well and in ways that make it a better place to live, if we want to put the glory of God on display as the true and better alternative to the foolishness of the world, then we need a reverence cultivated by the Word of God. That's what we need. If I could pick one verse in all of Scripture to see come to fruition here at, at, at Sojourn Montrose, it would be this one. This is what it says in Acts chapter 9. Now, Acts is chronicling for us the, be, the very beginning of the church, right? This is, our, this is our roots. This is our spiritual heritage right here, right? And this is what it says in Acts chapter 9, verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. Now get this. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. They walked in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit and they multiplied. As they submitted to God's way of life, they became compelling. Ephesians 3 tells us that the church submitting to and proclaiming God's word is the means by which the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known. Here's the reality. Unless we are tethered to God's infallible, inerrant, and sufficient word, we won't experience the fruit of wisdom personally nor will we present a compelling case for the glory of Christ and His kingdom. That means this. That means that a lot more of our conversations need to start with the Bible says rather than I think. We need to recognize. We need to recognize what, what Jeremiah says, which is that the, the, the heart is sick and deceitful who can know it? But that the Word of God is unchanging, available for all to see, and the means, again, by which we come to a right estimation of God that leads us to knowledge. It's the beginning of knowledge, but then also leads us to wisdom in carrying out that knowledge. So we need to do what the Scripture tells us to do. We need to delight in the law of the Lord, as Psalm 1 would say, meditate upon it day and night. We need to store up the word in our hearts, as Psalm 119 says. We need to train ourselves in the words of the faith and the good doctrine, like 1 Timothy says, so that we may no longer be carried about like children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, as Ephesians 4 would say. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up. Right? As a young church, this is God's word to us. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ Jesus. And the way that we do that, the way that we do that is submitting our, think, our I thinks to this is what the Bible says. And we have never experienced a pressure like we're experiencing right now, to fudge and to give up on and to navigate around parts of what this would have to say to us. And that's foolishness. It's irreverent. It's a silly myth. And we need to repent and come to the place where we will find knowledge and wisdom. And unlike fools, we will receive instruction rather than despise it. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity, Lord, again, just to gather together. You are great and gracious. I pray, Father, that um, we would dive into the Proverbs and we would see, Lord, how kind you are in giving us this revelation of yourself. See how kind you are and how consistent you are in that you are consistent in what you demand of your people and you are consistent in the grace and loving kindness that you show them when they fail. Thank you, God, for that. Thank you that this morning we get to come to your table. We get to take of your broken body and we get to take of your shed blood and we get to proclaim that where we have failed to walk in wisdom, payment has been made. That there is mercy and grace to help in time of need. And so, Lord, I pray that we would come to your table this morning rejoicing for the provision that you've given us, not only in the payment of our debt and for our sin, but also in the great glory that it is to be able to know you, to be able to know not just about you, but to know you through your word. May we cherish it as such. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.